What was the last sin of David? We've been studying life of David for three summers. The first summer, or first series, was about king in the wilderness. There we saw how God trained the fugitive David to be future king of Israel. And second series, last summer, we also studied the David's uh, triumphs in the first half of 2 Samuel. And then this summer, we've been studying David's tragedies. And today, we are studying, we will reflect on his last sin and mistake from the last chapter of 2 Samuel. So what was David's last sin? While you are thinking about it without opening the Bible, you know, let me point out an important textual, textual point about today's passage, 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel practically ends in chapter 23. Because chapter 22 records David's final praise to God, and chapter 23 records his last word, and then the list of David's famous warriors are named. And today's story is also completely stands alone, separate from the David's scene of Bathsheba and then all the family saga. So today's story is a base, a lot of scholars think that it's sort of an epilogue almost. It stands alone, and then they think it was added to the story or second Samuel already completed. So what's so important about David's last sin that it was added to David's story, which is already completed? What's the big deal about the David's last sin? I'm intentionally dragging this introduction because the topic is immensely important. So to answer that question, let me ask another question. What do you think God hates most? What do you think God hates most? Of course, God hates sin. But what sin, which sin do you think God hates so much to add, add to David's story to warn us? The sin that God hates the most is a pride. God hates the sin, but among all sins, God hates pride most. Because pride is the greatest of all sins. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said this. According to Christian teachers, and I may add a Christian tradition, such as seven deadly sins, the essential vice, almost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through the pride the devil became the devil. And pride leads to every other vice. It is a complete anti-God, anti-God, or anti-God state of mind. So if there's a one thing that we must watch out for, and we must guard ourselves against, that's a pride. Pride is a cancer cell of our spirit. Either we kill it, or will be killed by it. Just as a cancer treatment requires early detection and chemotherapy, we need vigilant. We need to be vigilant about pride in our heart and our spirit. So today, that's what we'll learn from the last sin of David, the pride which led him to count the number of his fighting men. 
And for this last episode of A King's Tragedy, I want us to really think hard, analyze, and confront pride, any, any pride in us. And so that we can receive God's blessings without reserve and share His love without any retreat with everyone around us. So today, let me give you the outline. I'm going to talk about uh, uh, pride and the warning, first part. And second part is uh, a punishment and uh, wrath of God. And second, third, final part is a penance and the wonders of God's love. So it follows uh, sin, suffering, and salvation, kind of a, a typical Old Testament outline. Let's look at the verse 1 and 2. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribe of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. Today's story begins in a strange, hard way. We have uh, two preliminary questions from these verses. First, it was God who incited David to take a census. If God did it, <clears throat> initiated, how could God punish David for doing what he moved his heart? This is where many, especially first-time Bible readers, feel the Bible is a strange, hard book to understand. And this is why we encourage you to take Cornerstone Bible Study, our first Bible study, and Good Shepherd College classes. You have to recognize that Bible is an ancient scripture, which was written around, you know, between 3,000 years and 2,000 years ago. So to understand this ancient scripture, you need us a guide to show the context behind the text. Reading the Bible without understanding text, context, it's not just frustrating, it is dangerous. It's dangerous. So now, how do we understand the passage like this? Today's story is also written in the first chronicle. In first chronicle 21, verse 1, it said this, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So, According to 1 Chronicle, it was not God, but Satan that tempted David to commit the sin of a pride. So commentator said there is no contradiction between these two passages. Because we understand that even Satan sometimes serves the Lord's purposes. Putting the text together, we can say that God used Satan as an agent in inciting David to be the agent of God's anger against Israel. So a passage like this shows us that, you know, God's actually permissive will is different from God's positive will. You know, God's will are not same, not all the same. God has God, some of God's wills are positive, some of them negative, and some of them permissive, sort of neutral kind of. So today, God positively did not tempt us or David to the evil, but God permissively allowed evil to teach us a lesson. And uh, I have uh, no problem with this, you know, God allowing 
evil to advance its purposes. And the classic example in the Bible is Genesis chapter 50, when, you know, after his father Jacob died, and the Joseph's brothers were afraid of, of his retaliation, Joseph said what? As for you, you meant the evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph was saying, your action against me, do you know what Joseph did? Joseph's brother did to Joseph. They tried to kill him, but at the last minute, they sold him as a slave to Egypt, right? So Joseph was saying that your action was evil, but God allowed it to bring a greater good, which is saving entire family from famine. So we get that. But still, if you are a thoughtful reader, still you have a question, why? Did the writer of 2 Samuel say the way that sounds like implicating God? Why didn't he say the way the Chronicle writer said clearly? Once again, we must know that biblical writers have a different, they all had a different context, historical context, when they say, when they speak about God and the truth. So, oh, Today, it's a little bit critical issue, but I'll go very brief, so pay attention. Old Testament history is divided into two groups. One group, the first group is called the Deuteronomic history. And Deuteronomic history consists, I mean, comes, it, it covers from Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, and all the way to the kings. And the second group is called the chron chron Chronicle history, which was uh, written later. And then, you know, First Chronicle, Second Chronicle, and Nehemiah, and Ezra, all this included. The first Deuteronomic book, or Deuteronomic history, was written during the Israel's exile in Babylon. That's what I mean, context, historical context is excellent. Whereas the Chronicle history was written after Babylonian exile or post-exile. So when Second Samuel, today's passage was written, the theological historical context was polytheistic environment because Israel was a one of the many captives brought by Babylon into their country. And there Israelites saw people from all over the world with a different religion and different gods. And they want to say their God, Yahweh, is not one of the many gods. Even though they are POWs, their God, Yahweh, is a creator, almighty God. And they want to express their faith, so-called monotheistic faith, in almighty God who controls good and both and evil. Do you follow? That is a context. That's what it led them to speak in this way. Okay, my last attempt is at a... A very solid Old Testament scholar named Bill Arnold from Asbury Theological Seminary said this. Their, the, their emphasis, Israel's emphasis on Yahweh, Yahweh as a creator and supreme God of the universe often found the expression in the Bible in their crediting him with a disaster or calamity. We modern readers are usually more interested in defending God's goodness than ancient Israelite authors who are first and foremost interested in his power. Subsequently, and late in their history, they saw a role for Satan in the power structure of a world administration. Is that clear? So, 
writer of 2 Samuel wants to really talk about God is Almighty God. You know? Okay. If you're still confused, that's okay. You know? You can ask me afterwards. The second preliminary question uh, directly involved in our text is that about taking census. What's wrong about the king counting the number of his own subjects? That's what ancient kings regularly conducted. And then why did they conduct the census? For two reasons, tax and troops, money and military. They have to find out how many people live where so that they can finance their rules and their armies. And the most famous census in the Bible was one done by Caesar Augustus in Luke chapter 2, which fulfilled the messianic prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And those of you taking Livingstone Bible study, you know the full meaning of it, right? I want us, I want us to know that numbering people or taking a census in itself is not a sin. Census, taking census is not a sin. Actually, in the Bible, God commanded Moses number Israelite three times before. So, question is, not the uh, census itself, but why are you numbering your people? It's not the act of a numbering, but intent of a numbering that matters here. And the text does not tell us about the David's motive. We don't know exactly why David numbered his fighting people. And one thing for sure is that there is no war. There is no urgent you know, need for it. So it's a very ambiguous, very clear. So how do we know that David, what David was doing is wrong? Same thing. How do you know someone has a pride problem? How do you know you have a pride issue? The clue is the next verse. Look at the next verse. Verse 3. Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Jumping to verse 8. After they gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and 20 days, 10 months. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. There is a pastor named Ken Hughes, and they, uh, he's actually a well-known pastor in Chicago area, and he said this. Pride is a sin that we cannot see in ourselves, yet so detest in others. Pride is the sin that we cannot see in ourselves, yet so detest in others. Do you know who detects pride in you better than yourself? That's your friends and neighbors, people near you. They see your pride better than you. Do you know who is the most clueless about pride in you? That's you. Yeah, that's you. Pride is one of the greatest blind spots we all have. So if you want to know, if you want to be sure about avoiding this greatest sin, 
pride that God hates the most, you have to be open, honest, and receptive to your friends and their words and their, their sincere warnings. You know, this is one of the reasons with the house church ministry. We do. We hope people can really speak the truth in love to all of us. We have to be in the community where we can hear the truth in love. You know, truthful, faithful friends are antidote against the pride. So principle one today, examination of how do you discover, how do you know you have a pride? Listen to faithful, truthful friends. David has a faithful friend, truthful friend today. Joab and army commanders. But what did you know, David do? He overruled their sincere warning with the king's authority. And now, second part, we will see David experiencing the harshest punishment and the wrath of God. So let me, before I go, do you listen to other people? Their comment to you or even against you? Sometimes you feel someone pointed out something about you that you feel painful, you might check whether that has to do with the pride. You know, I, uh, I pointed out a few people, and uh, some reacted. And sometimes I wonder whether I touch their pride, soft, their soft point, the pride point. Now let's look at the verse 10. David was conscience-stricken after he had a content, uh, counted a fighting man, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David, David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to God, the prophet, David's seer. Go tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So God went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of a famine in your land? Or three months of a fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of a plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Once again, we don't know exactly, exactly the reason for that David felt is a conscience stricken. Did the census express his failure to trust God? Was it an act of arrogance or some kind of bragging? Or David had some kind of a empire ambition that you know, he aspired to build an empire through military campaign without regard to God's will? We don't know for sure. But important thing is, Today, David voluntarily confesses sins to God. He said, I have sinned greatly. I have sinned greatly. You know, last time David said it was when prophet Nathan confronted him. Today, David confessed his sin without any prophet. And this is something we must recognize. This is so special thing about David. David responded to his troubled conscience by speaking to God. And that's not easy. Because in the Bible, other kings of Israel, later, they didn't do that. You know, sin tends to harden the heart against God. In Israel's history, Israel is known for hardening their heart against God when God confronts them with a prophet. You know, likewise, you probably met some people 
that, uh, you know, when you point it out something, they become more defensive and more dogmatic about their, you know, their pride. Not David, he confessed. In fact, the great virtue of David was his sensitivity to the heart of God. To repent. You know, we call David as a man after God's heart. And then oftentimes that expression like that, we take it romantically. Oh, man after God's heart. You know, the real man after God's heart, he was a, he was a real serious about his sin. He's a repentant. He took the sin serious. Once again, the most king, what most kings, you know, think to be their right on the regular mode of operation, David confessed today was a great sin. I have sinned greatly. By the way, pride is the most deadly. You know why? Because it's most deceptive. Many people miss to detect their pride because pride comes in a very uh, subtle and silent or quiet ways. You know, our image of a proud person, prideful person, someone is loud and then, you know, you know, like, I'm sorry, like some politicians, you can imagine right away, you know, the images in your brain, right? And we are not. And because we are not cocky, brashy, loud, blatant, and obvious, we think we are not proud. But that doesn't mean we are not proud. You know, we are living in the age of image, in the world of a carefully drafted, crafted, you know, social mold. And Andrew Murray, a Christian missionary writer, once said this, There is no pride so dangerous, none so subtle and insidious as the pride of holiness. Pride of holiness. I am so grateful to God for the pastoral training and theological education I received from God and the faithful servants of God in my life. But at the same time, I'm doubly careful if my theology becomes more prideful than productive. If my theology makes me simply feel superior to other pastors, I am proud I failed. If my teaching does not produce a grateful, humble, and dedicated disciples of Christ, but only receive the accolade, oh, Pastor Paul, PhD, you know, profound, whatever, then I failed. You know, Satan sells pride to our soul in the most deceptive way. So we need to really watch out. If you think you're, you, you know, you're not proud, I hope today you really listen to the Holy Spirit. There is an American theologian, another, today I'm quoting a lot of Old Testament theologians. Uh, his name is uh, Dennis Kinlaw. He was a former president of uh, Asbury College. And he said this, Satan disguises submission to himself under the rules of a personal autonomy. He never asked us to become his servant. Never once did a serpent say to Eve, I want to be your master. Shifting commitment is never from Christ to evil. It is always from Christ to self. Instead of his will, self-interest now rules, and what I want reigns. That's the essence of sin. Satan is smart. 
He doesn't tell us to worship me. No. He tells us, worship yourself. Love yourself. You are the best news to yourself. No one is better than yourself. Love yourself. Love yourself. Hey, God's love. Yeah, that's all Christians saying. Love yourself. Now, when David recognizes the sin of pride, God gave three choices about punishment. That's the first time in the Bible. So why did the Lord involve David in this unusual way? Why didn't God simply send one of the punishment, you know, as soon as David committed, you know, mistake? And the three options of a punishment that God gave is three years of famine, three months of losing war, or three days of pestilence or plague. And do you notice the lesser the duration of a punishment was a greater the intensity of suffering and horror? So, you want to suffer a little bit long, or you want to suffer a lot in short time? This is a hard. Why? God wants David to learn an important spiritual truth. And actually, First uh, Chronicle 21, you know, God actually said, Go tell David, this is what God law says, that I'm holding three choices out for you. Pick one of them for yourself that I will do, for, do, do to you. God said, basically said, I'm doing for you. So what is God trying to teach? That is uh, principle number two I call the ecology of sin. In ecology of sin, we have to remember sin always pays its price with the suffering of an innocent. Sin makes the innocent sufferers. You have to recognize, you know, my unfaithfulness, God, affects my family and everyone in forest. Yeah. Reason I repent is not just for me, but, you know, because I affect you. So I want you to, you know, think this. Don't confine your sin and mistake to yourself. Your sin is a far greater than, far more than your private matter. It's like a cancer. It's like a COVID virus that infects others. I want to call out the parents. Watch out! Because your children will bear the fruit of your pride. Your sin of pride. Single people, you're not included. You're not excluded. Watch out! Because your pride and your sin will deform and even debilitate your friendship and the future of your friends. You know, we are really grateful. Those of you uh, new to forests, we are not like this all the time. This is a new to many of us. Uh, you know, we are seven years old church, and uh, up until just uh, last year, heavily uh, married the children fat church. And the last two years, all of a sudden, people in you know twenties and early thirties joined, singles joined, and we have a huge demographic you know switch. We are grateful to God because we pray for that several years. You know. Before the singles came, we pray. In, in my prayer book, I pray for the singles, to, singles for five years. Five years. Yeah, so much so that, you know, so one member came to me, Pastor Paul, please do not, you know, embarrass them, you know, or embarrass us. I said, well, because I call this, you know, I, I've been saying that. Oh, we are looking for anchor singles, anchor singles. Sarah was anchor single, you know. Because we don't have any guys, but she's, you know, she stayed in this church. 
I, I, I want to call out Sarah Kim because she's getting married and living soon. And, uh, you know, I, one day I saw Sarah, you know, after the, during the fellowship, I saw she coming back again to the church. I said, where did you go? And Sarah said there was a newcomer single girl. And when she was leaving the church, she walked to her car and saying goodbye. I said, Sarah, you are better than pastor and better than all the people. So this is a God's blessing. And uh, those of us start the forest, this is the reason that we started our church. We started a forest for the future generations. You are the reason that I'm here. Now, I want to say this. As we have uh, this uh, new group of uh, many young adults, I really pray these days, I hope you join me too, spiritual influences. Now, social influences, spiritual influences. I don't want our young adults to become another, you know, shallow, social, dating game kind of church. Nothing wrong about a dating people in the church. I told you, we even have a Christian dating seminar, and I even laid out how to do right way. You know? Let's not make uh, just a social club. We have a chance to build a true church that follows Christ in biblical way rather than cultural way. Now, let's see David's choice and consequences. Verse 14, David said to God, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of God, for his mercy is great, and do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end, end of the time designated, and 70,000 70, of the people from then to Beersheba died. David said, let us fall into the hand of the Lord rather than hand of man. You know, by that, David chose the three days of a plague because the other two options, actually, king and his family could be insulated from the danger. But David actually exposed himself to the punishment of God like everyone else. Had David chosen the war, you know, he's, a, he's probably uh, no danger because kings are most protected during the war. You know, and the David has a bodyguard, you know, there's a, there's a fierce, you know, warriors to protect him, right? And what about famine? Who suffer famine? Poor people suffer famine. Rich people like a royal family, they don't suffer during the famine. But plague is a different story. Virus hit rich and poor, royal and the commoner. And today David owned his responsibility. Own the you know, whole thing that he made, I'm guilty. Punish me, Lord, along with my people. And I think again, David knows the heart of God. David said, I'd rather trust God because God is more merciful and is a greater, greater than anything I ever deserve. And we should remember this, David's you know, word. I'd rather fall into the hands of God than any hands of a, you know, whatever man. Do you really believe in God's discipline more than any delight, any promises in this world? St. Augustine once said this, Trust the past to the mercy of God. 
present to his love and your future to his providence. I think is well said. You know, don't hang on to the past. You can do anything about it. Trust your past to God's mercy and your present to his love. And then believe that God will continue to provide and lead your future. Now, let's see the conclusion of today's story. That is a penance and the wonders of God's love. Verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. Angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. Both God and David couldn't bear the suffering of the innocent. And God's pain and David's pleading happened at the same time. God relented as David owned the full responsibility. And upon David's penance, God commanded him to offer sacrifice to confirm his forgiveness. And that's the last you know, verses in 2 Samuel. So let's read it responsibly, 2 Samuel chapter, two, uh, chapter 24, verse 18 to 25. So we will read responsibly. So, brothers, uh, we will read and this, you know what, let's read responsibly. I'll read and you read, okay? So I'll read first. On that day, God went to David, uh, God went to David and said, Go up and build the altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up. And the Lord had commanded through God. When Arana looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with, uh, king with his face to the ground. My Lord, the king, come to the servant to buy your threshing floor. David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord. The plague on the people may be stopped. Arana said to the David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering. Here are the threshing sledges and oxen yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arana gives all this to the king. Arana also said to him, may the lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, for an offering that costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and oxen and paid the 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land. The plague on Israel was stopped. Do you notice to hear that the writer of 2 Samuel mentioned Arana, the Jebusite, so much? You know how many times? Eight times. Eight times. Why? Why is Arana so important? You know, some biblical scholars speculate the meaning of his name like he was not, a, actually Arana is not a name, it's a title. And he was the last Jebusite king of Jerusalem. I'm not sure. What text clearly places the significance here? It's not on the person but the place. Because text emphasized, today's passage emphasized the plague stopped 
at the Aranas of threshing floor. That's where the plague stopped. And then also the threshing floor was purchased by David. And the cost of Aaron's, you know, threshing floor is a very significant because, you know, Aaron offered free, but David insists that he will pay the fair price. And the verse 24 is a very, very, you know, a really uh, important verse by itself because David said, I will not sacrifice the Lord my God burnt offering that cost me nothing. David understands the sacrifice God has to be sacrificial. Not superficial, not something just routine. Otherwise, his worship will be cheap. His service is meaningless. Worship is all about sacrifice, not a convenience. Because God's grace, the object of our worship, is free but costly. Now, what's the significance of a threshing floor of Arana? Now, that's the final point of today's message. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. The threshing floor of Arana was on Mount Moriah. Do you know what, does, do you know what Mount Moriah is? What happened? In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham offered Isaac on that Mount Moriah. David bought this very historical and important place. And he wanted to build the altar to the Lord. And not only one time, but forever. Because he wanted to remember God's forgiveness forever. And then later... David presented that place as a site for Solomon's temple. So this threshing hold, threshing hold, you know, floor of arena was where the temple was built. And then 1 Chronicles chapter 21, 26 said, when David offered the offering there, God actually answered David's you know, prayer with a fire from heaven on the altar of a burnt offering. Now, the wrapping of the whole story. I really love the final verse of the book of Samuel. Chapter 24, verse 25 said, David built an altar to the Lord. David didn't build a temple for the Lord. He built an altar to the Lord. Last act of David in the book of Samuel was that he built an altar to offer sacrifice to God. And the why it is so important? Because here we find the wonder of God's love. All David could do was provide building, purchasing, and preparing the altar for Israel. But it was a son of David, Jesus Christ, Son of God, who placed himself on that altar as a sacrifice and the pays, paid the price of our redemption with his life. So David prepared the altar and God prepared the sacrifice. 
This is why the last episode was added to David's story, because it has an everlasting significance for all of us. So final, the, ever, the principle is everlasting covenant. Today's story talking about ultimately everlasting covenant that is a redemptive humility of Christ save us all from all dangerous illusions of our pride. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 describes Christ's sacrifice in this way. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. You know what is the ultimate antidote of uh, pride? It's a humility. So you can say today, if God hates uh, pride the most, what do you think God loves the most? It's a humility. God loves humble people. Why? Humble, desperate people is like a people with open hands. And God has so much to give. D.L. Moody once said, God sent no one empty except those who are full of themselves. Proud people, they have their own plan. They, their heart is filled with their own ideas. There's no room for God to bless. Whereas a humble, poor, desperate people, God loves to outpour his Blessings and promise to them. And then I want us to recognize that Christ's you know, humility. Because Christ's humility is different from our humility. You know the difference between Christ's humility and our humility? Our humility is what I call the realistic humility. Because we are nothing. We came from nothing. You and I are nothing. Seriously. If somebody holds your you know, breathing for five minutes, you're done. You become a, you know, whatever, dirt, you know? I mean, we are just a one, one cell away from death or, you know, cancer or whatever. You know? We are nothing. We are who we are by grace of God. We came from nothing by grace of God. So we, we if you're really honest, you are, you know, what are we? We are nothing. We are nothing. So it's a realistic. Our humility is a given, nothing. Whereas a Christ's humility is a different. Whereas our humility is based on our weakness and our nothingness, Christ's humility is different. It's based on strength and richness called love. And Christ's you know, humility is not just real, it's not realistic humility. You know what kind of humility is that? It's a redemptive humility. That's what the Philippians chapter 2 said. Christ lowered himself to Lift us up. Christ emptied himself to pour his grace on upon us. That's a redemptive, redemptive humility. If you want to grow spiritually, you need to have redemptive humility. This is a different level of humility. And I want to say, some people have a misunderstanding that humility is a weak and the humility is like a, almost the same as a humiliation. This is why Greek people never thought humility as a virtue. Christians are different. We saw humility from Christ. Humility of Christ and the real Christian humility is strong. It's a redemptive. It saves people. It makes a community alive. And when we really have a redemptive humility, 
That's how we will expand God's kingdom. And that's how God will bless us to bless other people. That's a real blessing. You know, real blessing is not to have many good stuff. Real blessing is you being a good stuff to other people. People are happy to be with you. That is a real blessing. You become a blessing, that is a blessing. Not just, you know, you have many blessings. That's a worldly blessing. For that, I want to say this. I'm... How do you get the redemptive humility? This, you know how to get the redemptive humility like a Christ? When you serve other people, when you love other people, you will find out you got nothing to give. You become humble and desperate. Parents understand. Parents, when you have a first child, were you just happy? I was a desperate. Jamie and I, we got married, and the next, because Jamie was an old, you know, old maid, you know, we got on a family planning right away. So we didn't have a time to enjoy our honeymoon. Boom, they became, we became a parent. I remember. I was desperate. I remember the night, the afternoon that I brought my baby to our apartment. No one had to ask, tell me. I knelt down before God and prayed that God, you placed this helpless human being on my hand. Help me, help me, help me, help me. How do you grow spiritually when you want to serve other people? You know, we've been announcing a call, you know, call to uh, uh, shepherds. It's not only young adults. It's all everybody. You know, vision of our, our forest community church is that everyone become a good ship to Jesus because that's the first order. You need to hear Jesus. And to follow him and know him. And then become a good shepherd to other people. Why? That's how we grow. When we pray for the people, when we serve other people, that's when we realize that only through God we can love people. And that's when God pours his blessing upon us. So I want to say this. The redemptive humility of Christ is the ultimate antidote that saves us and strengthens us against our pride. Amen? Let's pray.